You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening, I'm Colleen Christie. Chris and Sophie are off tonight, and we begin with breaking news and a sigh of relief in Vancouver, where police have made an arrest in a sexual assault. The victim was followed home from a bus stop and allegedly attacked in her own home. Grace Key is at VPD headquarters with more on what we're learning about the arrest. Grace. Yes, certainly a major break in this case. Less than a week after this daytime sexual assault occurred in East Vancouver. So this morning, police arrested a 59-year-old Vancouver man. He was arrested without incident. Now, this comes just days after police released images of the suspect. The sexual assault occurred on Thursday. It was about 11.30 a.m. when a woman in her 20s was waiting for a bus at 41st Avenue near Earl Street when a man started talking to her. Now, she realized she forgot something, so instead of boarding the bus, she headed back home. The man followed her, walking with her to a residence where he sexually assaulted her. Uh, we're not releasing much more uh, about the suspect in this case. Charges have not been approved. Uh, by Crown Council, but he was arrested for aggravated sexual assault. And we anticipate uh, laying or forwarding more charges to Crown Council for their consideration. Now, police said it was tips that did lead them to the arrest. They wouldn't specifically say whether or not it was those images that they released a couple of days ago. So they are still keeping pretty tight-lipped about this case. Colleen? All right, thank you so much for that. The trial is now underway for the man accused of killing Constable John Davidson in a shootout in 2017. Today, Oscar Arfman entered a plea of not guilty. Rumina Dea was in court for this, and she joins us now with more on what happened on day one. Rumina. Colleen, a plea of not guilty, as you said, on one count of first-degree murder. Oscar Arfman, a senior citizen from Alberta, has been in custody since 2017. Sitting right behind him in the courtroom today, Constable Davidson's wife, his entire family, his children, and his patrol partner. So a very heavy day for the family. Courtroom 209 was filled with family, friends, and officers. Now, the issue at trial is the identification of Arfman as the person who shot and killed Davidson, says Crown. Crown says the evidence will prove Davidson was ambushed by the accused who shot him from behind. Crown adding that while Davidson lay face down on the ground, Arfman shot him again before fleeing in a stolen car. Now, at the time of Arfman's arrest, his family said he was suffering from mental illness. It's unclear at this point whether this will become a live issue at trial. 30 witnesses are expected to take the stand. Drone footage, dash cam, video and hundreds of photographs make up part of the graphic evidence. Well, we've waited a long time for this trial to start. Uh, it was the original trial date in January, they got put off. And so for it to get going, I think uh, for the police department, for the city of Abbotsford, all the citizens, um, the family, certainly the Davidson family, it's good to get it going. It's good to start hearing the evidence difficult watching some of the video play today and hearing a little yeah, bit of the sure. testimony? You know, the, uh, some of the video that was shown today uh, showed the last seconds of uh, Constable Davidson's life. And Romina, we understand there are a number of people expected to testify. Do we know how long this trial is expected to take? 
As I mentioned, Colleen, uh, 30 witnesses. Uh, it's going to be a long trial expected to go into August. And while no one saw the first shot, Crown is saying that there will be a key witness who saw the second shot, and that person will testify. We have yet to hear from defense. Colleen. Romina, thank you. Three members of one family now stand accused in the murder of Kieran Desi. Desi's boyfriend, Harjot Singh Dio, was first charged with second-degree murder. Then last week, charges were announced against his mother. Today, news his sister is also facing charges. And Jennifer Palma explains why there could be more arrests. Put in long days, long weeks, all for the sake of pursuing the truth and to leave no stone unturned. It's a shocking case where a third person of one family has been charged in connection with the murder of 19-year-old Bob Kieran Desi. This past Friday, on May 24th, 23-year-old Inderdeep Dio was arrested and charged with accessory after the fact to murder. Inderdeep Kaur Dio is the sister of Harjit Singh Dio, the 21-year-old man charged with second-degree murder in the Desi case. Their mother, 53-year-old Manji Kaur Dio, was charged last week also with accessory after the fact to murder. The charge alleges both women tried to help him escape. Dio was arrested at YVR May 10th this year after arriving from somewhere in Canada. If the women are convicted, the charge carries a maximum life sentence. We have been in regular contact with Beth Kieran's family. And they were apprised of the most recent developments on the case uh, soon after it happened. Last year, police released this video of two vehicles believed to be involved in her murder. Desi was last seen August 1st, 2017. She had left her home around 9 at night. Her body was found three hours later in a burned-out SUV. She was a student at Kwantlen Polytechnic University and had received a kidney transplant earlier that year. IHIT says Dio and Desi were in a romantic relationship. He has been ordered not to contact her family. We believe that there are still people out there uh, that we're looking at that we believe have information about this case. And so we're pleading them, pleading with them again to do the right thing. Harjit Singh Dio is expected to remain in custody until June 6th when he returns to court. Jennifer Palma, Global News. Charges have now been laid in connection with a shooting in New Westminster one month ago today. On April 27th, police responded to reports of gunfire at Hume Park in the 600 block of East Columbia Street. When police arrived, they found 20-year-old Robel Abera dead with gunshot wounds. Today, we learned 19-year-old Sam Jeffrudi is facing a second-degree murder charge. Investigators believe the men knew each other, but the shooting is not believed to be gang-related. Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott announced today they will both run as independents in the October federal election. The two former liberal cabinet ministers unveiled their political intentions in coordinated news conferences this morning. Jill Bennett has more on their decisions and why, despite many offers, they're going it alone. And what do you think? Excellent. Wouldn't that be something? I think it's good. The reaction from Vancouver Granville constituents seems positive. After their MP made it official, she will be running again in October. And in this election, I will be running as an independent candidate. That announcement made the same day another high-profile MP shared the same news. There is no longer a political party telling me what to say. 
There's no longer a political staffer telling me how to vote. Both Wilson Raybould and Philpott resigned from the Liberal cabinet following fallout and controversy with the SNC-Lavalin affair. They were both expelled from the Liberal caucus in April and have been sitting as independents since. They were both courted by the Green Party, even given the option of becoming that party's leader, but declined. I am confident that running as an independent is the best way to go about go about it at this time and the best way to transform our political culture. But history shows a difficult path for independents seeking re-election after leaving their party. Only a handful have been successful in the past few decades. Jody Wilson-Raybould probably has the strongest national profile of uh, any MP other than perhaps uh, you know, a party leader. But it's still far from a slam dunk for Wilson-Raybould. I'm conflicted because I'm worried that it's going to split the votes. I'm of two minds of it right now, but uh, I need to think about it some more. The stakes seem higher for Philpott in a riding that has gone back and forth between Liberals and Conservatives. Vancouver Granville, though, covers a large and diverse area that has often been a three-way race. That race could look very different come October. Jill Bennett, Global News. And Keith Baldry is live in Victoria with more. Keith, Jody Wilson-Raybould's hugely popular, but what are the odds of her actually winning? Well, as Jill noted in her story, independents usually do not win election in this country as an MP or even as MLAs. Uh, only the last one actually elected as an as a MP way back in 2008. Last time, two members elected as independent back in 1957. So the odds are long. But Wilson Raybo got a lot of votes in 2015. She's got a bit of a cushion behind her. So take a look at the results from 2015. The Liberals with 44% of the vote. The NDP and the Conservatives neck and neck in second. The Greens really not a factor at all. Jody Wilson Raybo had more than nine thousand votes more than the New Democrats second place finisher. So she can split the vote and yet still win, although the odds are long. Elizabeth May, the Green Party leader, disappointed she didn't join the Greens because as she knows, it's going to be hard to win as an independent. I wish that they were running as Greens because I worry that their chances of being re-elected aren't as good facing all the obstacles that independent candidates face. The Elections Act isn't really a level playing field between candidates running in existing parties and candidates running as independents. So if they do win, they'll be sitting as two independents. They want to change the system. Hard to do that if you're just two voices out of more than 330. Uh, but again, perhaps as a start to a new course of politics. But I don't like the odds of them necessarily winning. The splitting the vote argument, I think, is going to resonate with a lot of people. All right, Keith, thank you. All right. A second man charged in connection with a deadly crash in Coquitlam two years ago appeared in court today. Three people died in that crash, including two young girls. And while the family of the children have been able to forgive the first driver to be sentenced, John Waugh explains why they didn't have the same reaction today. It was a very emotional day in this Port Coquitlam courthouse. The family of the two young girls hoping to get some sort of closure, with the defendant putting in a guilty plea and the Crown and Defence putting in a joint submission for sentencing. But it was the actions of the defendant that caused the mother of Ella Hernandez, Michelle, to say she wasn't quite ready to forgive. 21-year-old Hamid Darapur walked into the courthouse and pled guilty to one charge of driving without due care or attention. He was sentenced to one day in prison, six months probation and 40 hours of community service. But it was Darbapar's refusal to address the family of the victims directly they say denied them of the closure they were so desperately seeking. During an emotional day of victim impact statements, Mother Michelle Hernandez described losing her daughter Ella as ripping her heart to pieces and scarring her soul. 
Her daughter, nine-year-old Ella Hernandez, and her three-year-old cousin, Tyler Hernandez, were killed in the head-on collision on Lougheed Highway on April 28, 2017. Darbapur and another driver were engaged in what was described in court as a road rage incident. The vehicles eventually collided and swerved into oncoming traffic when a Nissan occupied by the two girls and their grandparents was struck. The other driver, Adam Golding, also pled guilty and received the same sentence in December of 2018. His fiancée also lost her life in the crash. Golding directly expressed remorse to the family during his sentencing. Michelle Hernandez's final words were a challenge to Darbapur to one day garner up the courage and show remorse and to one day address them as a family. John Hua, Global News. Well, it is nothing short of remarkable. The Toronto Raptors run making basketball history this weekend. The Raptors are the first Canadian team to reach the NBA Finals. And while Vancouverites have a, a certain rivalry with Toronto, Canadians right across the country are jumping on the Jurassic bandwagon, proudly owning the slogan, We the North. Aaron MacArthur joins us with more on an idea to unite local fans. Aaron. Yeah, Colleen. A beautiful night in May or June. What better place to watch a fabulous sporting event than here in Terry Fox Plaza on the big screen? There's a plan in place to turn this into Jurassic Park West. Jurassic Park. The weekend party might still be going on in Toronto. Tens of thousands of people watching the clinching game at Jurassic Park. And now that the Raptors are playing in the final, Vancouver councillor Michael Weeb wants to show the team some West Coast support too. Maybe in Terry Fox Plaza, maybe in front of the art gallery. Game one, outside with fans. Enjoy each other's company outside. Instead of watching at home with one or two friends, come out and watch it with thousands of other Vancouverites supporting our Raptors. The fans are on board. Would you come down? Oh, and watch definitely, that? yeah, definitely. Of course, that would be so much fun. Yeah, I mean, the Raptors, is, it's Canada's team, right? I mean, it's the only team here, and uh, Canada should be super proud. While basketball in Toronto has reached heights not seen before in Canada, Vancouver basketball fans still remember the Grizzlies and their lack of success. Chris Hebb, who has worked for both teams, says it might take the Raptors winning it all before they can really call themselves Canada's team. The team that came in at the same time as we did, especially in Toronto, succeeding the way they are, it's kind of hard not to feel jealous. Vancouver has a track record with these kind of events. A couple of Stanley Cup final riots always gives people pause to put the games on the Jumbotron. The city won't be paying for a party, but it will help private groups get the approvals they need. But it will be a family-friendly event where we're hoping everyone can come and enjoy the game. While it is true we don't have the best track record when it comes to outdoor public viewing events, Toronto is a long way away. We have enough emotional detachment here that we should be okay. Colleen, back to you. Fingers crossed. Thanks, Aaron. An Okanagan man attacked when he stepped in to help a young woman during a sexual assault is now out of a medically induced coma. As Shelby Tom reports, the Good Samaritans family has high hopes for his recovery. And a warning, some of you may find the images in this, dis- in this story disturbing. Chelsea Townend credits her faith and her husband's strength as he makes a remarkable recovery, more than three weeks after being viciously attacked on Okanagan Lake Beach in Penticton. Bradley Eliason just awoke from a medically induced coma. I was told that he wasn't going to make it. I was told that if he did, he'd be disabled. He, he wouldn't be the same person. 
and I just, I wouldn't accept it. Eliasson was enjoying a beachside bonfire with friends when two unknown and intoxicated men approached. Witnesses say the men allegedly harassed a group of teens nearby, including pulling on one young woman's shirt. That's when the Good Samaritan intervened. He was assaulted and he was punched in the face and he fell backwards and cracked his skull on the concrete. Rendering him unconscious, he was rushed to the ICU at Kelowna General. The first few weeks were absolutely brutal. Um, he was hooked up to all these machines like just like you see in the movies almost. The 28-year-old required 56 stitches to his skull, but slowly his condition improved, much to the amazement of healthcare professionals and his family. The tremors went away. Um, they lowered the sedation, they lowered the medications, and up to this point, like today, he is wide awake. Townen says doctors are unsure about potential long-term brain damage, but she's optimistic the love of her life will fully recover. 21-year-old Thomas Kruger Allen is facing charges of aggravated assault, sexual assault, and two counts of common assault involving three people that night. His next court appearance is scheduled for Wednesday. Shelby Tom, Global News, Penticton. The practice of trying to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity from LGBTQ to heterosexual is commonly known as conversion therapy. The city of Vancouver banned it last year, and today, as Kylie Stanton reports, the BC Green Party is introducing legislation to end it province-wide. Loud and proud. For this community, celebrating their true selves is about so much more than just a parade. You can feel the energy, so positive, so inviting, so joyous, love it. But at the same time, those struggling with their sexuality or gender identity can face a very different experience. The doctor's plan for my therapy was to say that I needed to revert to my innate heterosexuality. And so the BC Green Party is introducing a bill that would ban so-called conversion therapies that seek to change gay sexual orientations in minors. It's clear that this has caused the LGBTQ2 plus community harm that can only be described as immense. The bill prohibits the provision of conversion therapy to minors by health professionals, payment or reimbursement through health insurance, and the expenditure of public funds like MSP. It doesn't seek an outright ban for adults due to matters of consent and free choice. The government stands behind the idea. It isn't allowed to occur in British Columbia. There is no way that it is supported by the Ministry of Health. In a statement, the ministry went on to say if they billed for this under a different billing code, this would be considered fraudulent and the practitioner would be referred to the Medical Services Commission for inquiry and or discipline. Still, British Columbia's laws are currently lagging behind much of Canada. In recent years, Ontario, Nova Scotia and Manitoba have banned the practice and introduced regulatory changes. Alberta, on the other hand, has just cancelled a working group tasked with banning conversion therapy in that province. Very disappointed. The Alberta government is out of step with what many governments across North America are doing in ensuring that the LGBTQ community is strongly protected and respected. By nature, it's a covert practice, but these bans are helping to bring it to light. Whether or not the bill passes, its introduction is symbolic, adding another level of support to those who need it. Kylie Stanton, Global News, Victoria. 
Nanaimo Ladysmith's new MP was sworn in today, but controversy is overshadowing the ceremony. It's about his alleged ties to the 9-11 truther movement. Canada's second Green MP is again denying any links to the conspiracy theorists who question the explanation of and motive for the September 11th attacks. Richard Zussman has this NewsHour follow-up. It's today Paul Manley has been waiting a long time for, sworn in as an MP. The Member of Parliament for Nanaimo Lady Smith escorted onto the floor of the House of Commons on Monday by Green Party leader Elizabeth May. Manley becoming just the second ever Green to be elected to the House of Commons. But it was controversial comments made by Manley in 2007 that have followed him to Ottawa. Media are all bought into the whole 9-11 thing. Of I mean, you, they you know, are. like you, if you, if you talk to uh, those people, they're they're going to they're going to tell you you're a conspiracy theorist. Following his swearing in, Manley speaking to the reporters in Ottawa. Manley says he believes Al Qaeda terrorists are the one responsible for the 9-11 terror attacks, but he was skeptical of the official account that Saddam Hussein and Iraq were somehow linked to those attacks. Goes back 12 years to 2007 when we were just finding out that all the information about Saddam Hussein being involved <clears throat> in 9-11 wasn't true and so you know at that time I was questioning what what we could uh, trust from George Bush and Dick Cheney. Before politics Manley was a documentary filmmaker and one of his movies was shown at a film festival run by those who questioned 9-11 and whether it was an inside job. Manley says he was uncomfortable with his film being shown at that festival, but ultimately his job was to have his movie seen by as many people as possible. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. U.S. President Donald Trump continued his state visit to Japan today, disagreeing with his host, Japanese Prime Minister Abe, over recent North Korean missile tests. And while appearing to side with Japan's sworn enemy, he also managed to generate bipartisan criticism at home. Just hours after this high honor, President Trump becoming the first world leader to meet Japan's new emperor, the president breaking with his host country and his own national security advisor on North Korea, dismissing the country's latest ballistic missile tests. It doesn't matter. But for Japan, in range of North Korea's rockets, it does matter. Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe declaring the missile tests violate UN Security Council resolutions. National Security Advisor John Bolton agrees, but Mr. Trump striking a softer note. My people think it could have been a violation, as you know. I view it differently. I view it as a man. Perhaps he wants to get attention. And perhaps not. Who knows? The president insisting it's still possible Kim Jong-un could eventually denuclearize. He is a very smart man. He gets it well. So I think that he is, uh, he is going to try at some point. I'm in no rush at all. He also sided with the North Korean dictator in criticizing his domestic rival, Joe Biden. Kim Jong-un made a statement that Joe Biden is a low IQ individual. He probably is, based on his record. Uh, I think I agree with him on that. Those words on foreign soil prompting a swift bipartisan backlash back at home. From Republican Adam Kinzinger who tweeted, It's Memorial Day weekend and you're taking a shot at Biden while praising a dictator? This is just plain wrong. To Democratic candidate Pete Buttigieg. Kim Jong-un is a murderous dictator and uh, Vice President Biden serves this country honorably. 
There is concern about shark attacks in a popular vacation spot for many British Columbians. A 65-year-old man from California was fatally injured over the weekend off the shores of Maui. Tourists watched in horror as first responders brought the victim to shore on a jet ski. But efforts to revive him failed. They pulled the man up. Um, he looked unconscious when they transferred him to the other gurney. And we could see that they were trying to do CPR on him. But as we got closer, I saw some blood on his stomach. It's not known what type of shark was involved, but attacks in Hawaii are rare. It's been four years since the last deadly encounter. In Health Matters tonight, the B.C. government is expanding the use of lower-cost drugs in a move it says will save the provincial health care system millions of dollars. As Tanya Beja reports, thousands of patients will have six months to make the prescription switch. British Columbia is tackling some of its biggest pharmacare costs, shifting patients away from pricey and once-patented drugs over to much cheaper alternatives. What we're doing today is helping tens of thousands of people. And I am very proud that British Columbia is taking the lead on this. People living with chronic conditions such as diabetes and arthritis will be transitioned from biologic drugs over to biosimilar versions, saving the province more than $96 million in three years. One can think of the biosimilars as identical twins. Doctors say there is no clinical difference between biosimilar drugs and the originals, but they cost 25 to 50 percent less. The evidence now clearly indicates that transition from originated biologic to biosimilar can take place safely and without impacting patient care. But the move will mean change because some patients access their treatments at infusion clinics. They may have to travel to new locations is a nuisance and it's an inconvenience for the 18,000 British Columbians who will have to make the transition in the next six months. And it's my job and the job of my colleagues and other physicians to ease that process. With the savings, the province is extending limited coverage to more arthritis and diabetes medication like Jardiance. This particular drug, uh, if used by the 50,000 British Columbians at high risk of heart disease and stroke, is expected to save 700 lives per year. Patients have six months to switch to biosimilar drugs before Pharmacare stops covering the more expensive version. Tanya Global News. We have some breaking news out of Japan where as many as three people are feared dead and several others wounded in a stabbing attack just outside of Tokyo. It happened during the morning rush at a bus stop in Kawasaki City. Officials say a man wielding a knife attacked commuters waiting in line. There are reports one child and two adults have died. At least 19 others are wounded. The alleged attacker was caught, but no other details are known at this time. Well, it happens every year when the weather warms up. It just takes a few seconds for a child to fall from an open window or a balcony. Catherine Urquhart has more on how one boy survived what's become a preventable rite of summer and what experts suggest parents do to safeguard their homes. Who else do you like? Cookie Monster. Four-year-old Oliver is back watching his favorite cartoons. He's fortunate. Only weeks ago, he tumbled from a window, falling 17 feet, five meters, landing on concrete. I sprinted through the house and around to the side of the house where I found my four-year-old son lying on his back on the concrete, screaming incoherently with an obvious 
deformity and, and obvious head injury. I can't tell you how thankful I was to have you guys show up. Paramedic Jody Butterman attended the call and is relieved Oliver is on the road to recovery. It's just two fingers and that screen can open very easily. She's urging people to install window blocks, noting they should only be open a maximum 10 centimeters or four inches. Those are one of the most uh, tragic calls that any paramedic or first responder can respond to. Already this year, six children have been transported to BC Children's Hospital after falling from windows or balconies. Last year, a total of 15 were treated there for related injuries. So if your child has fallen more than five feet or one and a half meters, or they've fallen out of a window above the ground floor, especially if they're having a headache, vomiting repeatedly, acting abnormal or have lost consciousness, it's really important to seek care immediately. Oliver spent five days in ICU and still suffers from vision problems, which could be permanent. His father says he regrets not securing his windows sooner. I'm hoping that by sharing Oliver's story, if we can, if we can just save one family from going through what we've gone through over the past weeks, it'd be make it all worth it. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. A very excited driver in the Northwest Territories. There it is, folks. Look at the boost, eh? <laughs> if you didn't catch what he said, we're going to translate that for you right after the forecast. Christy, you got to see, see this. It's crazy. <laughs> he sounds excited. Yeah, he's very excited. I know a lot of people are excited about this weather. It's gorgeous out there. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we've got a stunning five-day forecast in store for you. This is the scene out there right now. It seems a little bit hazy, but generally it's blue sky and warmth out there. Here's a look at the temperatures today. 27 in Coquitlam and Pitt Meadows. These are a good four to six degrees above seasonal, and that's the case in the interior regions as well, where a number of areas hit 31 degrees, Lillooet and Lytton. Now, we are going to see this warmth continue, but it's also the smoke that we're worried about. Fort St. John, look at how hazy it was. This, this is actually a current um, situation, current um, tower cam showing you what it's like up in the Fort St. John area. And this is Smithers all the way across to the other side of northern BC. Inland sections of the north coast also really hazy and that's because there's still a very strong flow towards the west. Look at the satellite image. You can see the smoke being spread into our region. North of Prince George it's heaviest and that extends over to Smithers and why it was so smoky in that one imagery. We're also seeing it down towards Williams Lake, Quinell and extending as far south South is Kamloops. So this smoke is spreading right across the region. We can expect this pattern to continue for at least the next two days. So it won't be consistently thick, but you will see thick smoke on and off in those areas. We've got a huge upper level ridge that's driving all of the moisture well north of us and protecting us from any moisture. We have no rain in the forecast until the end of the weekend. We may see a bit of cloud cover tomorrow, especially near the Vancouver Island. In the morning you would see that, but otherwise sunshine there's the hazy sunshine you'll see across the north, sunny and warm, hot, really, across the south. So we'll see a range tomorrow from about 20 to 24 degrees, a little hotter as we head towards the latter part of the week. But as you can see, no rain in sight, although Sunday there is a chance of some rain. And I'll leave you with this shot. Aww. Great horned owl. Thanks to Judy for that one. That's just in the Surrey area. Aww, Action shot there. That's beautiful. We're going to stick with the wildlife theme for a second, Christy. Right. Video of a motorist in the Northwest Territories is going viral for his play-by-play -play of his wildlife encounter. Have a listen. There it is, folks. Look at the boost, eh? 
There it is, folks. Look at the big mouse. They're running on the road. There. Right across them. He says it super fast, but that's Johnny David William Storr narrating the journey of a moose that crossed his path in Aklavik in the Inuvik region. In high-speed commentary, Storr could be heard saying, there it is, folks, look the moosey. The video is generating a lot of views after it was posted to social media last week. The moosey. Sounds like he's not from the Northwest Territories, but perhaps Newfoundland. Yeah, a little it bit. It sound a little new fish. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It also sounds like he, in his spare time, is an auctioneer. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Quite Maybe possibly. he's trying to auction off the moose. Yeah. He's <laughs> I'm going to guess you watched the game on Saturday night. I did watch the game. Yeah, it was yes. fun. It was fun. And I'll give it to Toronto. They celebrated and didn't burn the town. Exactly. Down. But they won. True. Good point. You know. <laughs> we <laughs> lost. <laughs> Understand how that went? Still, that's no excuse for burning the town down. Um, the build-up to Game 1 of the NBA Final Series has begun, and it's not just about the players. There's lots of Drake talk as well. Warriors fans pointing out that Drake actually has tattoos in honor of Golden State Warriors stars Steph Curry and Kevin Durant. Yes. Whoa. As for Golden State's players, of all the things about the Raptors they have to worry about, Drake and his expensive seat heckling is not one of them. Drake can't shoot. (laughs) Nor can he pass. You ever seen Drake play basketball? (laughs) Have you? I saw a couple highlights. They wasn't so high. (laughs) So, (laughs) really don't care. All right. Doesn't care. Game one, Bruins, Blues. Remember the NHL? Yeah, it's back. Boy, they took a lot of time off between the uh, semifinals and the finals. But here we go. And the first goal is Braden Shen to give St. Louis a 1-0 lead in the first period. Bruins 11 days off, so some rust is showing. Example, David Pasternak. Where are you going with that? It ends up being a Vladimir Tarasenko goal, but it is now 2-1. Bruins have got one back. French Open, Denis Shapovalov with the interesting outfit. Taking on Jan Leonard Struff. And Shapovalov started well, was up three love at one point. Then he was up 5-4, but uh, Struff with the point here in the tie break, and he would win the first set 7-6. It hasn't been a great European season so far for Shapovalov. And incidentally, uh, Ali Asim and Milos Ronic are both hurt and are out of the French Open. So a great rally here, and Struff won the second set, 6-3. to three. Clay is really not Canada's court. You don't see a lot of clay courts around. Struff wins this in straight sets. So all the men that Canada hoped to have at the French Open are out. One because he lost, two because they're hurt. Bianca Andreescu taking on Marie Buzkova. Andreescu lost the first set, but she did win the second set 6-4. But the match is not over yet because there are no lights and the sun was going down. So everybody take a break and we'll come back tomorrow and finish this thing off. Uh, Novak Djokovic and Serena Williams did win their first round matches. Well, it sounds cliche, but James Allenby is on fire right now. He's like that dude in Fantastic Four, except he also carries a golf club. He led the first three rounds of the recent McKenzie Tour event before getting caught for first place on Sunday. But aside from that little Sunday stumble, he has been nothing but incredible going low at golf courses 
all over town. There may not be a golfer on the planet right now more dialed in than James Allenby. The Langley native has been taking aim at every golf course he's played of late, throwing down scores pro golfers work day in and day out to achieve. But what Allenby's currently doing is truly out of this world kind of stuff. What did you shoot at King's Links? King's Links was a 65. You follow that, you go to Mission, you shoot? 61. You go to Sandpiper and shoot? 63. And you go to Chilliwack and shoot? 61. Four straight course records. Yeah. Who does that? Me. <laughs> His peers on the Vancouver Golf Tour are all too familiar with Allen B's skill set. He's won four of the last five VGT events thanks to these soon-to-be-framed course record scorecards. He almost kept that winning streak alive this past weekend at Point Grey, where Allenby finished second at the opening PGA Tour Canada event. And get this, in his last nine tournament rounds of golf, James Allenby is a combined 64 under par. I mean, this is PGA Tour caliber golf. I mean, this is crazy. Yeah, not just four course records, but four back-to-back -back course records in a stretch of about 10 days. It's some of the best golf I've seen um, anywhere. I played over in South Africa and up here in Canada and down in the States, and he's on fire. You can't, uh, you can't take anything away from it. It's the most incredible golf that I've seen. Allenby's always been considered a pure striker of the golf ball. It's what's allowed him to play on numerous pro tours over the years, except he's never stuck or cashed a sizable paycheck of any kind. This year, he's changed his approach to the game, and it's literally all in the palm of his hand. Um, there's a, a strategy sort of um, app guide uh, that I'm that I've you know implemented this year. So what comes along with that is the stats keeping, so I'm able to see in-depth stats of uh, what I really need to improve on and what's really good. It seems like it's working. Yeah, and then putting well. The Royal Canadian Mint is honoring Canadians who landed at Juneau Beach by issuing a very special coin. As Global Shelley Steves reports, the first of the two, new $2 coins was presented to a New Brunswick veteran who stormed the beach in Normandy 75 years ago. Placed in his hand, it only weighs about 7 grams. But the meaning of this commemorative coin unveiled on Monday by the Canadian Mint weighs heavy on the heart of 99-year-old D-Day veteran Alphonse Vautour of New Brunswick. It was a wonderful feeling. Being the first in Canada to be given a copy of the coin, it brought him to tears. I never thought this would happen to me, but it did. <laughs> um. The $2 circulation coin honoring the 75th anniversary of D-Day was given to Votor as a thank you for his service. To have a veteran of D-Day uh, come here and, and to meet him in person and to be able to thank him in person is, uh, is extremely moving. Votor is one of the few Canadian veterans still alive, able to recall the notorious battle. His eyes have seen images they cannot unsee. It was no fun. Bomb all over the place and the big gun. Oh. June 6th, 1944, when Canadian troops rushed Juneau Beach in Normandy, France on D-Day. Vautour was there, a 23-year-old who volunteered to enlist because he felt it was his duty. The young private from the North Shore Regiment of New Brunswick says... He still wakes up with flashbacks of storming the beach with more than 600 soldiers from his regiment. It's something you never forget. You go to bed at night and 2 or 3 o'clock when you wake up, you, it's on your mind. 
35 soldiers from New Brunswick's North Shore Regiment died that first day, which is why he says this coin carries so much meaning. With images of soldiers peering toward the beach, just like Vautour's eyes did nearly 75 years ago. It's hard to believe when you realize what you've done. But if, if I was young, if there was another war, I would go ahead again. His dedication to his country, priceless. Shelley Steves, Global News, Moncton. I hope he knows how much we care mm -hmm. about him and all of the people who made that sacrifice. Every time you see that footage, those people had guts that we cannot imagine. Can't have no idea. You That's know? incredible. And to all of our service members today. Thank you. Thank you. Have a great night. <laughs>